As I was preparing the lesson, and as we've been studying First and Second Samuel and thinking about a king, I have been thinking about why do we need a king? Why is the king so important, and why is God going to so much effort and so much detail to teach us about the king, to teach us about why we need him, to teach us the theology of the king and what he will look like? And it's because God is working to present his son gloriously. It made me think about weddings and think about my own wedding. And my parents were very generous with my wedding, making sure that we had a, a beautiful venue to have our friends and family come from, buying me a beautiful wedding dress, getting my hair done. And that's normal. If it, parents do that for their daughters. They want to present the bride beautifully, to give her a special day. And yet weddings are very common, very special, right? But very normal. Probably every person in this room has been to a wedding. And it's just our friends and families who come to the wedding, unless you're Princess Kate. But for most of us, right, there are normal. Getting married is a normal part of, um, of our culture and society, and so are weddings. So how much more is God going to go to effort when his son comes as the king? And his son is going to be presented in all his glory to teach us and show us all that that means. And he's been showing us throughout all of the Bible, he's been showing us that he's the seed, the serpent crusher, and he's been showing us through Moses that he'll be the mediator and that he'll be the prophet and that he'll be the priest. And now he's showing us that he will be the king. And he's going to great effort to present Christ gloriously. And as God gives Christ, right, he's gonna, he gives him this great gift of the world and this worldwide rule and a people the joy that the son is going to have is going to bring glory to the father. As the, son, as the father blesses the son and the son has joy and gives that back to the father, then there's the world. Remember, we keep coming back to the thesis of creation. is going to be filled with the glory of God. So please open in prayer with me, and we're going to begin our study in 2 Samuel. Father, we thank you so much for your son. He is glorious. He has accomplished more for us than we could ask or imagine. And it is so wonderful to plumb the depths of your, your word and understand more and more about who our Savior is. I pray that you'd be with us as we study Second Samuel, that we would be hearers and doers of the word and our lives would be changed because of what we encounter in your word today and how your spirit works in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, the past month my family's been fighting sickness, so I'm sorry my voice is a little bit weak today, but we will. God has been strengthening it, so I'm gonna, we'll get through it. But um, We have been studying all year the redemptive thread, right? We have been studying that the Bible is one book, and how all of those, how all the books of the Bible, we've been viewing those more as chapters, fit together. And we've been looking at the seed and where the seed is coming from. And if you remember last week when we came to 1 Samuel, we said that God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. We used Graham's Goldsworthy's quote there that God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. And that's going to be incredibly clear this today as we come to the Davidic covenant, that God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. And remember, we've been consistently defining the kingdom as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And we said, again, just as a review from 1 Samuel, because remember, the book of Samuel is actually one book. And 1 and 2 Samuel are really one book that just got divided when it got translated into Greek onto two scrolls. And so what is the message of Samuel? And the message of the book of Samuel is that the kingship of Israel is established by God through his prophet Samuel by an everlasting covenant with the house of David. That's from Todd Bolin, a professor at the Master's College. The message of Samuel, again, for those of you who are taking notes, is that the kingship of Israel is established by God through his prophet Samuel by an everlasting covenant 
with the house of David. And so last week we said that God was laying out a theology of the king, and we saw that in the contrast between David and Saul, how Saul showed what a king shouldn't be, and David showed what a king should be. A man after God's own heart, a man who trusts and obeys the covenant and the Torah, a man who knows that he's the lowercase k king under Christ, right? The God, the capital K king. One who reveres the office of the king and who is seeking the best for the people. We saw that, and we saw how Saul failed in those areas. And so as we pick up in 2 Samuel, we're going to see that the author is going to continue to show us that David is the true king, and he's going to continue to show us the, the rights that David has to rule and how David is the, teaching us the theology of kingdom. Uh, I think I've shared this with you before, but when I was in college, I was an English major. I love books. I love literature, but a little quirk that I have, my husband thinks it's pretty weird, is I won't read a book unless I've read or know that it has a good ending. So I often read the end of a book and then determine to read it. And he just thinks that you know, it ruins the book. And I say, no, if you read a book and it has a bad ending, it's a waste of time, right? Just think about this, Pride and Prejudice. You read the whole book, you're waiting for Mr. Darcy and Miss Elizabeth to get together. And if they don't, that's a wasted, I mean, you read the whole book for no purpose. And if I ruined the end of that book for any of you, I do apologize. <laughs> But it's still worth reading. So today I'm going to do that. Today I'm going to tell you the end of the story. I'm going to lay out everywhere we're going and give you a road map because I think that if we understand the structure of the book of 2 Samuel, then we're going to really understand clearly what the narrator is trying to draw out and trying to teach us. So we're going to have three points today. We're going to first see that David is the king. David is established as king. Then we're going to look at the Davidic covenant. And then we're going to look at David's sin and consequences. So David is king. We're going to look at the Davidic covenant and David's sin and consequences. But I'm also going to give you my subpoints because the first half of the book, there are three threads that the narrator is stringing together. And the first one is that David, that the narrator is going to show us that David has personal integrity and morality. David has personal integrity and morality. The second thread is that he has military victory. He is this great military conqueror under the covenant promises of Deuteronomy. And the third thread is that he unifies the nation, okay? And then we're going to hit the high point of the book in 2 Samuel 7, where we see the Davidic covenant, and then all those threads are going to unravel. Just like we saw David's personal integrity, we're going to see David's sin with Bathsheba and that integrity unravel. We're going to see that because of that, he loses control of his military, and the military might unravels. And then we're going to also see that there are rebellions, the nation because of his sin, and the unity of the nation is going to unravel. So we're going to see David as king. We're going to see the Davidic covenant. We're going to see the David's sin and its consequences, and we're going to see those three threads unravel. So let's begin in Samuel 1 with David as king. So remember, last week we left off, Saul and Jonathan have died. They've died in the battle against the Philistines. And right away, an Amalekite comes to David, and he says, I've killed Saul. And he brings the, remember in our lesson, we saw he brought the crown and the armlet of Saul, and he said, I've killed him. And he's expecting David, you know, Saul was David's enemy. He's expecting a great reward for this. But David has learned through his refining in the wilderness that you don't take the kingdom. You wait for God to establish you as king. And so even though this man comes bowing before him, acknowledging him as king, and saying, hey, you can have the kingdom now, David waits for God to establish him. And he reveres the office of king, saying, you don't kill the Lord's anointed. You don't ever come to me and say, oh, guess who I killed? God's king. And he executes the Amalekite for what he did, which was the right response. And he waits for God to establish him. And then we see in verse 20, we looked at it, it says, tell it not in Gath. 
Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. So David laments. He gives this whole lament for the house of Saul. Saul's been his enemy. Saul's been pursuing David for 10 years. But David understands how serious it is for a nation to lose their king. How serious it is to give God's enemy an opportunity to rejoice over them. And so he says, we need to mourn this. This is a funeral dirge because the house of Saul is now over. And this gets put, this would be probably as well known to the children of Israel as our nursery rhymes are. This is put in one of their books that is not survived, um, the book of Jashir. But it would have been well, well known. And when we get to the prophet Micah, we're going to hear him referencing this. Because this would have been very culturally well known to them. So he shows reverence for the office of the king. He shows that he's not going to take the kingdom until God establishes him as king. And jumping ahead a little bit, we're going to see that he keeps his covenant promise to Jonathan, right? He finds Jonathan's sons, and he takes care of Mephibosheth. And he puts him at the king's table. He keeps his word. So we see that the narrator is establishing that David has integrity. David is waiting on the Lord. David is revering the office. Which brings us to the second thread. We see David as a military ruler. And so if you noticed, there's this interesting fight at Gibeah, right? And, the, and remember how we said that there's, um, the, with David and Goliath, there can be corporate solidarity where one man fights for another. So Goliath fights for the Philistines, David fights for Israel, whoever wins, that's the winner. That's what's happening when Abner brings his 12 men and they fight against David's 12 men. So the 12 men fight and whoever wins, that's the winner. But what happens? All of them die, right? And you would think this is kind of an odd story. But God is showing that the best of Abner's men are equal to the best of David's men. David's men aren't superior to Abner, right? But then immediately after that, there's this battle where David defeats Abner. 380 of Abner's men fall, and they go running away to the 19 of David's that die. So who's giving David the victory, and who's making David a military power? It's God. It's not that David's superior. It's not that his military might superior. No, his best men are the same as Abner's. But God is establishing David, and it keeps saying that, that Saul's house becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. So David is becoming strong, and then as we come to chapter 3, remember last week we talked about the three Gs. There are three things the king is not supposed to do. Remember, no gals, no gold, no giddy-up. He's not supposed to multiply wives. He's not supposed to multiply horses. He's not supposed to multiply gold. What does the narrator just drop in in verse 2? Here are the children that are born to David, right? Here are the women that he marries. And then he just goes on with the story. But it's a hint that not everything is as it should be. So Abner is really the power behind Ishbosheth, the king. You know, so Judah, as we saw in the lesson, Judah's united David. David's the king over Judah, but not over the other 11 tribes. Ishbosheth, he's the king, but really Abner's running things. But Ishbosheth accuses Abner of doing wrong against him. And Abner says, I'm out of here. I'm done. I've been trying to establish you as king, but if you're going to put this charge to my account, I'm going to go make David king. And so look in chapter 3, verse 17. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time now you've been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hands of the Philistines and from the hands of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron, all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. So God is now going to establish David over all of Israel. And things are looking great. He meets with Abner. They agree. But then Joab kills Abner. And this is especially treacherous because where does Joab kill Abner? In Hebron. If you remember, Hebron is a city of refuge. 
It's a city where you go <laughs> to get fair justice if you've been wrongly accused. So in battle, Abner has killed Joab's brother, but that's in battle. That's not murder. That wasn't him murdering his brother. So, but, but Joab wants revenge, and he does it in a city of refuge. So this is great treachery on Joab's part. And the North should be saying, you've basically assassinated our leader. This treaty is over. We're out of here. But what happens in verse 36? First, we see David mourns Abner. David mourns Abner, and verse 36, all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased the people. So despite the fact that, humanly speaking, the north should have left, all the people come to David, and now David is the king over Israel. He is united. So we see that thread. He has military might. He's united all of Israel. He has personal integrity. So in chapter 5, David is anointed king. And then notice it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Then all the tribes of Israel come to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all of Israel acknowledges God has done this, but what is God entrusting David with? He's entrusting David with the role of a shepherd. The king is to be a shepherd to Israel. What is a shepherd? What does a shepherd do? The shepherd provides. The shepherd protects. The shepherd leads. The shepherd comforts. And the shepherd brings the sheep home. That's what the king is supposed to do. He's supposed to bring the people home. And God is entrusting the king and David with being the shepherd of Israel. Many scholars believe that it is after this that David writes Psalm 23. And what does David say in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Remember how we keep saying that even though Israel has a king, it's a theocratic monarchy. David understands his right relationship to God. He's being entrusted with this role, but he is still the lowercase k king under God's rule, under the capital K king. He understands the right king-to-king relationship. So then, David's established. What does he go and do immediately? He goes and he conquers Jerusalem. And we saw in the lesson that Jerusalem is very important. It is going to It's going to play a huge role in all of redemptive history. But David conquers it, and there's a few things to note. First of all, this is the first conquering in the land since Joshua. And if you're saying, wait, during the time of the judges, they were always fighting with with the Philistines. But that was just a conquering and reconquering. The Philistines would take land that was already conquered, then the Israelites would take it back, but there was no new land taken. Now this is a new conquering. This is finishing the conquest. And he also picks Jerusalem because now he's king over all of Israel, and Jerusalem is in the tribe of Benjamin's territory. He can't rule from Judah. He needs to show that he's the king over all of Israel, not just over Judah. So it's politically wise. He's showing that he's like Joshua. He's going to finish the conquest. And also, when we looked at Jerusalem, Jerusalem has great significance because Mount Moriah, that's where Abraham was told to go and sacrifice Isaac, right? So this is the place of sacrifice and substitution. And in Genesis 14, Melchizedek comes from Salem, from Jerusalem. This is where we see the king and priest. And we looked in lesson two at Psalm 119 that eventually the seed is going to be one, right? He was from the, a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So you see all of these threads and the significance of Jerusalem pulling together and David making this the capital city. It's going to set the stage for Christ's rule, and, um, and for even for later, we'll, we'll get, I'm getting ahead of myself. So he picks Jerusalem as the capital, and then in verse 21, he goes and he starts fighting against the Philistines. But note in verse 21 
right? He says that he took all, he cleansed, he got rid of all the Philistines' idols, right? And he and his men took the idols. So as David conquers, he's cleansing the land. So when the true king comes, remember we're looking at the theology of a king, he is going to finish the conquest and he's going to cleanse the land from idolatry. But note verse 13, who, here are the wives and the sons that are born to David in Jerusalem. Three G's, remember, no gals. And who's listed? Solomon is listed. Even though Solomon's not born yet in the narrative, he's listed here. And it's just a hint that not everything is as it should be. So that is our first point. God has established David as king. We see David's personal integrity, his military might, and that he's unified the nation. And this is going to bring us to our second point, the Davidic covenant. So in chapter 6, David is bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And this shows that David has a heart to centralize worship. He's wanting to bring the ark back with the tabernacle and centralize worship again. And then in chapter 7, it says that David had rest. Okay? David has rest. And this is setting up for the importance of the Davidic covenant and all that God does because David knows in chapter, in, from Deuteronomy 12, because remember we said the three G's, the king's not supposed to do three things, but what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to read in the copy of the law that he has. So David would be very familiar with Deuteronomy 12, verse 10, which says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithe, and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before your Lord God. Remember that there's going to be one place of worship for Israel because there is one God, and when you have rest, you need to centralize that. Well, now he has rest. Now Jerusalem's the capital, and now he wants to centralize worship and establish true worship and build a temple. And this is going to be the background for the why God brings the Davidic covenant. Paul Twist, a professor at the Master Seminary, says that it is not an overstatement to say that every understanding we have of Christ as an authority comes from the Davidic covenant. This is going to be a crucial covenant for understanding Christ, his authority, and his rule. So we're going to look through the covenant. We're going to start in chapter 7, and the first thing we need to understand is that all of the previous covenants are now are going to be channeled through the Davidic covenant. So I'm just going to read it to you and stop and point out right here, this is where the Noahic covenant is. And right here, here's the Mosaic covenant. So we're starting in verse 7. It says, All I have, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. That's the promise of the Mosaic covenant, right? Covenant faithfulness e equals defeat of your enemies. And I will make your name great, like the name of the great ones on the earth. That's the Abrahamic covenant, a great name. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place. Remember, one of the key promises of the Abrahamic covenant is a land. Here's the Abrahamic covenant again. And they will be disturbed no more. And verse 11, and I will give you rest. Remember, what does Noah's name mean? Noah means rest. And what did the Noah covenant accomplish? Remember, it gave us some relief from the curse. Obviously, it didn't lift it, but it, in shortening man's lifespan, our sin wasn't getting as expansive. He reestablishes the seasons, which gives um, order to our life, so there was some rest, and it's also the Mosaic Covenant, because remember, when you're obedient, you will have rest in the land. So verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. I want to pause at the rest and 
and just remind ourselves what we learned when we were at the Davidic Covenant. Remember, when we think of rest, we usually think, I'm tired, I need to go lay down, I need to go take a nap. But that is not how the ancient Hebrews would have understood it. Jason Derushi says that ancient Hebrews would have thought of the presence of health and wholeness. This characterized Eden. So when they think of rest, they think about going back to Eden and what was lost, the health and the wholeness. It also means an absence of strife, the strife that began in the fall, strife between man, strife between man and God. So when they think of rest, they think of that restoration, that lifting of the curse. Going on in the covenant, it says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is like the Abrahamic covenant. It is not going to be revoked. It is not dependent on David and his house. So David comes and says, I want to build the Lord a temple. And God says, no. I'm going to build you a house. So now that we've seen how all the covenants are in the Davidic covenant, I'm going to have to go through and I want us to look at the main elements, three main elements of this covenant promise. And the first one we see in verse 12, it's this house or the seed. And when it says that your offspring, that should be translated seed. And that takes us right back to Genesis 3.15, when there's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent. That seed Okay, so we see the promised serpent crushers coming through here, the seed that Abraham was promised. And remember that seed has a dual meaning. We saw this in the Abrahamic covenant. It can mean that you're going to have descendants as many as the stars and the sand, but it can also be a one particular descendant. Just like we would say, you plant a seed or you sow seed. You know, it can be singular and plural, and it has a dual meaning. And so God is going to give David a dynasty, but he's also talking about the one seed, the one fulfillment a single son who will be the true Davidic king. The second element we're going to see is that God is going to give him a kingdom, one who's going to rule on David's throne. What does that mean? What does it mean to rule on David's throne? Well, it means that you're going to rule over all of Israel from the capital of Jerusalem, and it's going to be, all the people are going to have a homeland, a national homeland where the king rules from Jerusalem. So the question we have to ask is, is Christ ruling today, right? Is this true now? No. Right now, Israel has a prime minister. Also, it says that when the true seed comes, it's a time of peace and prosperity. And Does Israel have peace and prosperity? No. In fact, that's a big joke. There will never be peace in the Middle East, right? So right now, we do not see the Davidic king ruling. We don't see Christ on his throne. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then if you jump down to verse 13, it says that God says, sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we are waiting for Jesus to come and establish God's kingdom and bring peace to earth and prosperity. He'll do that when he comes and he rules in the millennial kingdom and he will rule from Jerusalem over the nation of Israel. But we also will see that in the eternal state when the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem come and he will reign eternally. Now this is not to say, and we've covered this over and over again, that God is not ruling over his creation, right? God is sovereign, God is the capital K king, that, that God is always sovereign and ruling over his creation and over the world, but there is a time when the 
one from David is going to come and be on this earth and be present and rule over the world. A third element, oh, and one more note on that. Jumping ahead to next year when we get to the New Testament. When Christ died and was resurrected, he did inaugurate the kingdom. So it does start there, but we're waiting for its complete fulfillment. Okay, so then the third element is going to be discipline. So God says, even, you know, this covenant's never going to be revoked, but if the king is disobedient, he will be, I will discipline him like a father disciplines his son. I won't take my love for him, but I will discipline him. And that means that the king will be disciplined, but it also means that the, you know, it's basically that Israel has to cling to, even if you go into exile, even if you are losing from your enemies, because of the discipline I'm bringing on you, this covenant will come true. I will not break it. I will not take it away from you. And if, again, you're thinking ahead, but but Christ would never receive discipline from God because he never commits iniquity. So how does that work with him being the ultimate seed? Remember how we've talked a lot about corporate solidarity and how one can stand for the many. When Christ dies on the cross, he stands as the king for his people in their place. Not that he commits iniquity, but that corporate solidarity where he stands for them and he takes the curse for them. So he receives the punishment of his people as their king, but not because he committed sin. And what is the goal of all of this covenant? The goal of the covenant is God's glory, and we see that in David's prayer. We see that he praises God and says, this is about you making your name great. This is about God ruling. And haven't we seen since Genesis 3 that when God doesn't rule, that's when everything's upside down. That's when everything doesn't work. This is about God's rule and God's glory. And from now on, all of history, as it relates to redemption, all of redemptive history is now going to be channeled through the Davidic covenant because all the other covenants are in, are going to be fulfilled through the Davidic covenant, through this seed, through this king. And so do we see that God's covenant promises are kingdom promises. So David's, we, we're going to see David's response. He, he praises God for this. He says that God is great because of it. But in verse 19, he says that this is instruction for all of mankind. And again, a better translation would be charter or law. This is a charter or law for all mankind. How is the Davidic covenant for more than just Israel? Walt Kaiser says, we call this a charter because it is the plan and prescription for God's king, whereby the whole world will be blessed. It is a grant conferring power, rights, and privileges to David and his seed for the benefit of all mankind. Right, because our salvation comes through the Davidic king. And that is how all the world shall be blessed. So now, David, given this great promise, we see in chapters 8 and 9, we see what it looks like when the Davidic king is ruling under God's blessing. And in chapter 8, he goes out and he conquers. And the narrator doesn't even, he just describes it as, there was almost no battle. David defeats. David defeats. David defeats. It just, it's not, here's how, it's just boom, 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 he defeats. And, and it, you see that when the king is obedient, under the covenant blessing, the Davidic king, he has God's special anointing and power. He can't lose. And David conquers the west and the east and then goes north all the way to the Euphrates to where David now controls all international trade. You cannot go to Africa, you cannot trade with Africa or Asia or Europe without going through the land that David controls. He conquers almost all of the land promised to Abraham. And so we see David's victory. And again, coming back to the kingdom, we have God's people, Israel, in God's place, the, the land of Israel, and under God's rule, the king, but the king under the capital K king and the Torah. And I would love to say, we're done. 
<laughs> story ends here, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful if that's where the story of David ended? But it doesn't. And now we're going to see all of those threads that we talked about unravel. So David has the Davidic covenant, but turn with me to chapter 10. And we're going to see that that first thread of David's, per and this brings us to our third point too, David's sin and consequences. And this is where the first thread is going to unravel, his personal integrity. But the sin with Bathsheba does not start in chapter 11. It really started in 1 Samuel. Every single time it said, and David multiplied wives, and David multiplied wives, and David multiplied, because he wasn't supposed to, and his heart was slowly hardened. And one reason that kings multiplied wives in that day was to secure their line, right? But who secures David's line? Who builds him a house? Who makes him a destiny, a dynasty? It's God. He wasn't supposed to be securing his line. He wasn't supposed to be like the other kings. That's where the sin starts, but it also starts in chapter 10. Note in verse 7, it says, And David sent, he sent Joab. So David's going to war, but he doesn't go. He sends Joab. And what have we just seen in chapter 8? That when the Davidic king goes, they can't lose. So why are you sending your army without you? And Joab gets in trouble. They barely make it out, right? Joab comes back to David, and then David goes out with them, and victory. And so you're kind of left asking the question, if they would have won automatically with David, and David was required for them to win, why wasn't David there to begin with? Well, verse 11, and you'll see it again. Actually, David sent becomes the theme of the next chapter. In 11.1, 11.3, 11.4, two times in 11.6, 11.14, and 11.27, it says David sent, David sent, David sent. And that's what the nations around did. They didn't go. That's what the kings of the other nations would do. They would send their armies. They wouldn't go. So David is not where he's supposed to be doing what he should be doing. So David is home. That's how he sees Bathsheba. And then in verse 3, when it says, And David sent and inquired. That word inquired actually more means pursue or take. It doesn't mean like, oh, who is she? I don't know. It means go get her. And that's why this man says, whoa. He's not saying, oh, I think this is who she is. He's like, David, that's Bathsheba. And he goes to great lengths to tell us who Bathsheba is. She's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. In 2 Samuel 23, 34, we find out that Eliam is one of David's mighty men. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, David's most trusted counselor. It says in 2 Samuel 16, 23, the counsel of Ahithophel, the counsel Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So here is your most trusted advisor. Here is one of your mighty men. Here's another one of your mighty men. That's who she is. She is the granddaughter of one, the daughter of one, the wife of one. She's not an unknown person. You can't go do this, David. But then, verse 4, David sends. Well, we know the story. She gets pregnant, and so then David sends for Uriah. And without, again, we, we looked at this in the lesson. The thing I want us to note is that Uriah, even Uriah drunk, is more righteous than David sober. He still won't go down to his wife. And David can trust him enough to send his own death order to Joab and, and never think that Uriah would look. Uriah has great integrity. And in fact, the position that David gives Uriah in battle was a place of honor. He gives him a place of honor. And so Uriah, again, some scholars believe that based on how everything worked at this time, Uriah is thinking, look, David brought me back. He tested me. He can trust me. And now he's giving me a place of honor. And I'm going to fight for the king. I'll die for the king. That's the depth of the treachery of David and Bathsheba. And then when it says in the end in 27, and David sent and brings Bathsheba to her home, this actually mirrors somebody else, right? Who 
takes a widow who needs to be provided for, who needs to be cared for into his home? Boaz. Right? David, you're just like your great-grandpa, right? And it's just absolutely evil what happens here. But God sees, and look in verse 12, and the Lord sent. Yahweh sent. God has seen everything that David has done, and it is not okay, and now God sends. And he sends Nathan. And Nathan rebukes David, and David says, I am the man. David, what was the punishment David was going to give the man before he knows it's him? He says, he should pay fourfold. And that's how David's going to pay. David's going to pay fourfold. And we'll see that as the narrative unrolls. And it also says, right, the sword shall not depart. For the rest of your dynasty, remember the everlasting love would not depart, but now the sword's not going to depart. They're together. And so there's always this tension now with the Davidic king. Before you go to battle and you could win, but now is it going to be the sword or is it going to be the everlasting love? And that tension exists throughout this narrative. And again, if you're thinking, but what about Christ? Christ doesn't have a sword. Like Christ is the end of this line. What does Christ do on the cross? We already talked about it. He takes the curse. He takes the sword. And all that's left is the blessing. He takes, he takes the curse upon himself and all that's left is a blessing. That's how he resolves it. Do you see how God is making what his son does glorious? So, quickly, we come into the rebellions. First of all, we're paying fourfold. The son of David and Bathsheba dies before the eighth day, before he's circumcised into the people. He's unnamed. And then we have Amnon rapes Tamar, and Absalom murders Amnon. So we have two sons that are dead, a daughter who's raped, and Absalom's murder of his brother was almost more justifiable than David because punishment for rape was death. David should have had Amnon executed. But do you see how all the sins mirror David's sins? The sexual sin of Amnon, the murder of Uriah, the murder of... How do you punish your sons for what you did and what you modeled to them? He should have as king, but you see from a human perspective how he failed in this. And so we see his personal integrity has unraveled, and now that second thread is unraveled because Absalom now sits at the gate, and he steals the heart of the people, right? As the people come in to get judgment from the king, he steals the heart of the people, and he leads a rebellion against his father. And who signs up with him in the rebellion? David's trusted advisor, right? Ahithophel. He had strong men supporting his rebellion because David gave them a strong reason to fall against him. They go to battle, and David tells them, after David has fled and he's fighting Absalom, David tells his generals, be kind to Absalom. Deal gently with him, right? And, even, and when Absalom gets caught in the tree, one of David's men, Joab says, why don't you kill him? He said, because we're going to obey the king. And Joab goes and puts three spears in his heart. Does David control his army anymore? No. David doesn't have control of his general over his army. He doesn't have control when half of his country is fighting him. The military control has unraveled. There's rebellion in the land. He doesn't control his generals. Then we see that we're also losing the unity. In chapter 19, they're bringing David back into, the, back into Jerusalem. And Judah comes to bring him back in. And then the other tribes in verse 41 come and say, why aren't you having us bring him in too? He's the king of all of us. And Judah and the tribes start fighting. Again, instead of being one nation, we're a tribal state. And in verse 20, before David, Absalom's rebellion has just been put down. David's not even back in Jerusalem. And a second rebellion under Sheba starts. And what does he say in verse 1? We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. We're tribes again. We're not part of you. And David has a second rebellion. 
And so we see that all of the sword is there, right? God said there's going to be a sword. God said you're going to, he's lost three sons. And when we get next week to 1 Kings, he's going to lose a fourth son, Adonijah. He loses four sons. He pays fourfold. And the sword is there. But what actually wins every time? David, the steadfast love of the Lord wins. David, despite foolish decisions, but he's brought back to Jerusalem. He's brought back to be king. The rebellions are put down. Why is the author going to such a detail to show us David's failures? When you get to Chronicles that parallels David's life, Bathsheba's sin isn't even mentioned. It's not in Chronicles. Why is he emphasizing this? Because he wants us to know we are looking for a greater king. And when we come to Matthew next year, that's what the book of Matthew is about, the king and the kingdom and knowing who exactly the Messiah is. But we also need to stop and pause and consider our sin and our heart. If David, a man after God's own heart, can let sin blind and harden his heart to this effect, we are, no, we are no better place than David. We have to always be examining our lives, lest we fall too. And remember when we talked about judges, I'd shared with you how my pastor back in California had said, if we, we often stop when we think about sin at the pleasure of the sin, and we don't think all the way through to the cost of the sin. And if we thought about the cost of the sin, it would deter so much sin in our life. Do you think if David knew, when he looked at Bathsheba, four of my sons will die, my country will be split in rebellion, the sword will never depart from my home, that she would have been so enticing to him? We have to see that. And the, another thing is David's sin started small, if you, right? Not that, that there are small sins, but it started just with the multiplying of wives, which was a culturally normal thing to do. So I'm doing the small thing that's very normal. How often are we letting small things that are culturally normal dictate what we're going to do in our heart instead of what the word of God says? Are we convicted because of what God says, or are we trying to fit in like the world? We're trying to find a little balance there because that David's life, that's where that will take us. That's what the consequences will look like. Well, I really kind of have a fourth point that I'm going to stick in here. We're going to look at the end at God's love, forgiveness, and covenant faithfulness. In chapter 24, David sins again. That's how the book ends, right? He takes a census he shouldn't take, and the prophet Gad comes to him and says, you get to pick your punishment. My parents rarely did this, but I just remember this was the worst punishment, having to pick. So God says you get three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of pestilence. What do you choose? And David makes a wise choice here. He says, I will take the pestilence because I would want to fall on the mercy of God. And so the pestilence comes, and 70,000 men, which means women and children, so it's not a total number, died. But as it comes to Jerusalem, God stops. Was God, God relented. God was merciful. And he stops, and he says, the prophet God says to David, go now and offer a sacrifice where the angel has stopped. Go right there and offer a sacrifice so that the plague would be averted, so that God will, because the angel, it says if you go to Chronicles, David could see the angel over the threshing floor. And so David goes, and he buys that threshing floor, and he makes a sacrifice, and that's where the temple is. That's where the temple is going to be built. And the key that we need to see is God's mercy. David sinned, he sinned greatly, but he fell on God's mercy, and the covenant is not revoked. God used it for good. This is the site of the temple. And you might be thinking, this lesson came too late in my life. I wish I had heard this a long time ago. I'm already paying the cost of my sin. I'm already living in its consequences. It's, I, I didn't know this soon enough. But I want to read with you from you then, read to you then another Psalm of David, Psalm 103. Starting in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to those who fear him, it shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Who is the son that succeeds David? It's Solomon, the son who shouldn't have been. Right? God is so merciful. Even in David's consequences, he picks Solomon. He says, call him Jedidiah, for the Lord loves him. God is so merciful to David. And the greatest evil that was ever perpetuated was the murder of God's son on the cross. And that created the greatest good in, crea- in salvation and the glory that God is going to receive through his redemption. So if you trust in Christ as your savior, even though the consequences remain, Christ takes the punishment, and his mercy is greater than all of our sins. So as we conclude, I want us to just set us up the stage for next week. Next week, Sarah Arthur is going to teach us First and Second Kings. I'm very excited about that. But I want you to remember, we're trying to view this as progressive, like we don't know what's happening next in the story. And so if you were Israel, and David's died, and now we're waiting for Solomon to rule, and you know this great promise has been made that there's going to be a serpent crusher, and it's coming from the king, and Solomon's won God's love. All of Israel's on the edge of their seats thinking, is this the one? Is this the one? So let's have that mindset. Try to think like they would be thinking as we come into the book of 1 Kings. Would you close with me in prayer? Father, we thank you that your grace is greater than our sins. We thank you that you have given us the cross, and in trust in your son, we can have eternal life, we can have forgiveness, we can have hope that you are so merciful, that you are so faithful, that you will by no means pardon the guilty, but you have provided a way for us to be right with you. We thank you for all that we can learn from David's life and pray that we would be women who learn, learn from your word and learn to follow it and to fear it and to obey it, and that we would be better worshipers of you because of it. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.